0: Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Louis Fishman. Louis is associate professor at Brooklyn College, New York, and is the author of Jews and Palestinians in the late Ottoman era, 1908-1914, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2020. Louis, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Louis, the first question I want to ask you is very much uh, about yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about your background before we talk about the book?
1: Yeah, thanks so much uh, for asking that question. People sometimes get confused, I would say. I was actually born in the U.S. and and went to Israel um, uh, as a youngster. uh, And I finished my B.A. there at Haifa University. So I was doing Middle East history. Basically, I come from uh, Middle East history. This was in the 1990s, so this is way before the... Internet and way before uh, smartphones and different things like this, and of course, uh, my classes were all uh, in Hebrew, and I studied Arabic there and from from there, you know, just quickly, briefly, at um, Haifa University, I was lucky to have great professors like uh, Butu Sabomani and then Elon uh, Pepe that works on the conflict quite a bit, and I also had uh, David Kushner who works on the Ottoman uh, era of late Ottoman Palestine. So, of course, when you're a BA, you don't really understand where this is going. And I remember when I'm applying to University of Chicago and other universities, is that we didn't have internet then, and we had to read about them. We had to go to libraries, read about them, write letters, and send them up in uh, you know, the post office. And I got accepted to University of Chicago, which was an absolute thrill. I can tell you back then, I really didn't understand what I was embarking on when I get accepted to M.A. Ph.D. program. But I knew that I was going to Chicago, and I was going to study with someone Named Rashid Khalidi, and Rashid Khalidi would be then even before he had written the, his, you know, uh, book Palestine Identity was known as uh, a scholar who worked on Palestinian issues. So it was really exciting for me as someone as an as an Israeli coming to the United States to study at Chicago. It, it was it was a very different world. Let me put it back then. Um, but I also did at Chicago. I was in Near Eastern Language and Civilization, so I did. Uh, you know, uh, also uh, Islam, we had to do a, a whole uh, section on Islam. So I studied um, the Quran and I studied different. It was a more very orientalist type department. But I did continue on with uh, Rashid Khaledin to work. And I also worked with a professor named Hassan Kayala, who was uh, outstanding on uh, Turkish um, late Ottoman uh, relations, Turkish Arab relations, superb scholar. Uh, so, you know, if between having Wadat Qadi, she was the most amazing person you could read the Quran with, and uh, Rashid Khalidi, these were my two uh, favorite uh, professors there. Um, and then Hassan was, Kayala was a visiting professor. I think I really did, I, get a, I got a lot there. Now, of course, I wasn't going to um, even thinking about Ottoman. You know, Chicago's known for the Ottoman program, and I didn't really take Ottoman classes there um, towards the end. And when I was studying with uh, Professor Khalidi, I, I, I was a bit, I, I did my MA on the 1970s. It's called uh, Yom El Ard Land Day um, on uh, protests that took place uh, pa- among the Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel in the 1970s. Then I went back to the 1930s and finally for my PhD, I figured, you know what? I really want to go back to the Ottoman era. And that's when I embarked on my, my dissertation. This book is uh, uh, inspired from the dissertation. Um, quite similar in some ways, but very different in other ways. Let me just finish. By then, my life takes a turn. And in 1999, I end up in... Um, I have just finished my coursework. I end up in Ankara, Turkey. And that's where that's became my uh, second or third home. Um, and since then, I've been... Uh, two years later, I moved to Istanbul, where I did my research in the Ottoman archives on the topic we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and I really, 2008, started a blog, Istanbul, Tel Aviv, New York, named after the three cities I live in, and since then I've been living in those three cities. Today I teach at Brooklyn College, but I regularly go back to my home in Istanbul and also
0: go back to Tel Aviv, uh, where I live part time as well. Fascinating story. Now, this book is the story of how, following the 1908 Young Turks Revolution, Istanbul, Palestinian and Jews. Negotiated their political communities in Palestine. Later on, you will also talk about how they negotiated the same uh, in Istanbul. Can you set for us the context of this story? You
1: know, that's, that's a great question, because I think when we write our dissertations, I think we're still everything's very much theoretical. And I was lucky to put my dissertation aside and dabble in journalism for quite a few years and come back to my, come back to my work when I was writing my book. And I think the context is what I got um, when I came back to that book. And that was understanding that a Ottoman Jerusalem was an integral part of the empire. And Jews and Palestinians never foresaw that the empire is just going to disappear or is going to break up. Um, and, uh, and they didn't really foresee uh, that the British would eventually uh, colonize Palestine. Now, having said that, of course, that was one of the greatest fears of the Palestinians besides Zionism was that fear of British colonialism. So I'm not saying that there was no sense that it could happen, but no one foresaw that was going to happen so quickly in the way it did. So I think if we go back to the pre-World War I era and we look at these communities, of course, the Jewish community, the absolute minority it's a very small community, which I call it made up. It's made up of a hodgepodge of communities, whether they're Jews from originally from Europe or say, Ashkenazi, or Sephardim, Jews speaking Ladino, um, coming originally from Spain from and uh, living within the integral to the Ottoman Empire. And of course, Arabic and Persian speaking Jews in Jerusalem, among other groups. So we when we talk about the Jewish community or what we call the Jewish Yeshuv, that really is a, a very... Multi, uh, uh, what do you say that that if we go back to the Yeshuv, we see that it is a is a a very mixed community, um, very diverse community. But by 1908, that community starts uniting under, under by adopting the Hebrew language as their main language of communication with each other within that within that context.
0: Can you also tell us a little bit more about sort of the historical context? Uh, perhaps some of the listeners might not be super familiar with, uh, you know, the events of 1908 and how was the revolution uh, received in Palestine?
1: Yeah, you know, that, that that first of all, I think even if we look back before the revolution, Palestine, is, you know, we have this idea that, you know, in my book, I, 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 I argue against the idea that there's you know, Palestine was sort of this quiet, peaceful place be, before uh, the rise of Zionism. We see that in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, always there's uh, some contest over the land by different groups. And the Ottomans really had very loose control of the provinces at that time. There wasn't always direct control. But by the mid-19th century, as the Ottomans are reforming their own state, which we called the Tanzimat, the Tanzimat era. Um, they are also bringing the, the provinces closer by implementing a, a strict sense of centralization. So, through that centralization, really by the first uh, uh, parliament uh, under Abdul Hamid II in the uh, mid 1870s, uh, you see um, that Jerusalem has a representative, Yusuf Dia. El-Khalali. So we have a sense already that Palestinians or Arabs are becoming much more connected to the center. Now, by 1908, during this the first constitutional period, is known that it almost didn't exist. Right when it starts, they have a parliament, they have a constitution that is suspended. And the 1908 Young Turk Revolution is saying, across the board, the majority of Ottoman citizens be them Armenian, be them Muslim, be them Jewish, from the different groups within the Ottoman Empire, Greek, the far majority of people are saying, we want change. We want you to, to Sultan Abdul Hamid II, we are demanding that you reopen the parliament and that you uh, reinstate the constitution. So the post-19 July, 1908, 1908 constitution is a radical period in Ottoman history where suddenly you have this boom in the press, for example. Just in Palestine alone, you're going to have around the 10 newspapers um, that start up. We have, th- we have smaller ones that are the main newspapers, but we, we have three Arabic newspapers, three Hebrew newspapers, within two or three years of the Young Turk Revolution. So the Young Turk Revolution was a moment where everyone... ...supported this idea of equality, of justice. And in this idea, Ottomanism transformed for, to a new sense of a civic identity. Civic a, in the sense that it doesn't matter if you are a Turkish Muslim or Arab Muslim... ...or if you're a Jewish person in Izmir speaking Ladino, or if you're a Bulgarian speaking uh, bulgarian greek so on and so forth that everyone is going to be able to adopt this idea of equality now we know the outcome of this um would be the massacre uh of armenians uh in 1915 uh, the armenian genocide we also know that uh, they lose the balkans and there's massacres of muslims with hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming in to the Ottoman Empire. And there's a shaking up of that empire in in the World War I era, or even a year or two years before this. But that little window of time, that 1908 to 1914, is a moment that gave all these different groups, whether the majority groups or the minority groups, some sense of hope. And it's that period that I work on where... Jews and Arabs are sitting together very much, not just theoretically, literally at the same um, banquets and at the same meetings and saying, let's create a new Ottoman identity. What I show in my book, though, what what turns out is something very, very different. And that's more of a contest between the different communities. And we can come to that. But the 1908 period really was a euphoric period, um, and it was not only for, for just Ottoman Jews. It really transformed the Zionist community in saying to themselves, if we, want a, a, if we want anything, we'll be able to achieve an autonomous homeland under the Ottoman system. So even the Zionist movement by late 1909 rejects the idea of an independent state. They are now saying we want the autonomous land in Palestine. And what does that mean? A Jewish-speaking community that is independent and that's able to develop itself and its own culture. So in that sense, they mirrored in the post-1908 revolution other minority groups within the Ottoman uh, sphere, such as the Armenians. We can talk about that more, Armenians and Greeks. Where they said, on one hand, we can have sort of cultural autonomy, speak Armenian; on the other hand, we're going to be proud Ottoman citizens, represented in the parliament. So this is this is the idea of the nineteen o eight revolution. Now, of course, by March nineteen o nine, it it goes sour. There's a counter revolution, and it gets politics gets more and more to become and. Expressed also through violence, and I think that's we see uh, uh, the uh, massacre of the Armenians in 1909 also, which is a new um, uh, book uh, by by Bedros uh, Demetessian about about this event also, and he also writes about the Young Turk uh, period as well. So yeah, so it's a very exciting period. Um, I'll just end by saying that that my book comes after. Two or three books that have been looking at Ottoman Palestine, whether it's Michelle uh, Campus's book, Ottoman Brothers, and Abigail Jacobson's books uh, on on this era. So what we see is that that historians started to see things that were basically unknown up until up until a few years ago, about a decade, decade and a half ago.
0: I also believe that it's important to uh, stress what you said earlier in methodological terms, the fact that we cannot read the history backwards. And so we have to remember that both Palestinians, Jews, and Zionists could not foresee the end of the Ottoman Empire, and therefore their work was still within the same Ottoman context. And so I was wondering if you can briefly give us a sense of uh, your methodological approach and the sources used uh, in your work.
1: Yeah, I had, I wrote that part about um, not reading history backward. Um, I think after post, it wasn't in my dissertation. That was part of my book. And once I started understanding that Zionist history and, a, oddly enough, Palestinian history itself has been written within that framework, very much of Zionist history. So I always said that if we look at if we look at the Palestinians, we've best basically read the majority through the lens of the minority meaning Palestinians have only become important when they're connected to the conflict. And if they're not connected to the conflict, we really don't know too much about them or, or what they're doing. This is very different than, let's say, Arabs in Syria or Egypt or different places. So if we start in 1948, and read history backwards, it's, this is how the Zionist narrative and later the Israeli narrative was created. The Israeli narrative is created saying, okay, we have a state in 1948. Now, how, do we, how did we get here? Well, we got here, there was World War II, and then we, of course, the Holocaust plays a huge part in this, but there was already a Jewish yishuv, and there was, always a, there was already a conflict before the Holocaust, of course. Um, and then they go, they go back, and then they go back to the British Mandate, the Balfour Declaration, the Second Aliyah, and the First Aliyah, the Waves of Immigration. So it's a very smooth line. So I wanted to break that that smoothness up and say, it's really too smooth. So in terms of methodology, is I spent a lot of time, and it's something I'm continuing to do on a weekly basis now after my book is out, is I sit and I read the newspapers for hours on end, days on end, weeks on end. And remember, we didn't have search engines back then. In Philistine, we still don't have a search engine. But for the Hebrew newspapers, I was doing microfilm. Or microfiche, I don't remember what it's called nowadays, right? The idea that we would sit there and roll and look at these bad prints for hours and end. But by doing that, I really was able to capture that most of the history that is written about even Israeli history is not covered. What we're reading in the newspapers is not covered in the official Israeli history. And what we're reading about Palestinians is not covered at all in the Palestinian history almost um and like i said the palestinian history to a great extent was written in reaction to that zionist history so a just an example i've been reading the last three or four months of philistine 1911 i'm seeing very many different aspects i found in my book what interests them is the fear of colonialism meaning in 1911 Zionism was there, but that British colonial fear was very, very uh, apparent during this period. They have Egypt right next to them under British occupation. India is there. And I find in my book that Palestine and Iraq are very comparable during this period in some of their fears, some of their, their, uh, what would you call it, disputes with the Ottoman authorities as well. And that's something I would like to develop in, in, in the future now. So when you go back in this and you start reading the newspapers, you start finding and it doesn't have to be in the Arabic or the Hebrew or the Ottoman press. The Ottoman press now has a search engine. So I'm able to go over and find different things that we never knew existed. And then you start seeing, wait a minute, the debates then don't really match the historical debates. Now, I have to say that in, at times it's frustrating, it's frustrating because you're you, you basically coming and saying, well, all this work is great of, of different friends and different uh, you know, older uh, uh, professors, but yes, all of their work is, I'm not saying that this work is going to undermine anyone's work so much that their work is no longer relevant. But a lot of it, we're going to see that the way we understand Palestine, I think is going to transform greatly in the next 20 years. The more scholars we bring in and the more people that read, they read these newspapers and they read the Ottoman documents. Of course, the other way I got this was going into the Ottoman archives. Now, when I went to Ottoman archives, I was convinced I would find tons on Zionism. And I found surprisingly little on Zionism. But I'll give you an example. I found the topic of my third chapter, the Haram of Sharif incident, which was an article in Journal of Palestine Studies before that. Most dossiers in the Ottoman archives are three to four pages. They give you very little information. It's a letter sent to Jerusalem. You know, um, there was a fight in a neighborhood between different Christian groups, it can be. It doesn't have to be Jews and Arabs, of course, right? They have different uh, things. They send it to the Jerusalem governor. The governor writes back to Istanbul and said, no, there's no truth to this. It was a little, a little fight, but nothing really came of this. And it ends that way. But when you come to the Haram al incident, which is the archaeological dig that took place in the Temple Mount area in 1911 by a British archaeological team, that this year alone four books have been written on that, four books, novels having written, well, two novels, one sort of semi-historical and another one in the works. So a man named Captain Parker comes. He digs uh, within the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, and all hell breaks loose. Near riots. It's the biggest event in Palestine between 1908 and 1914. And up until 15 years ago, not one article about it. No one knew about it, in fact. But if you go to the papers, you'll see it's everywhere. You go to the New York Times, you go to the London Times, you go to India. I'm sure you'll find articles written it because there was a delegation coming from India saying, "Well, the Islamic holy sites have been desecrated." It's absolutely huge. So that's that's exactly what that sort of highlights what I'm what I'm talking about. Now going back to the Ottoman dossier, the Ottoman dossier was about 120 pages long, and I have to tell you that. I have to go back to it. Originally, I said, this should be my first book. And then I said, well, you know, all these people are writing. And there's a nice article in the New York Times by the great-granddaughter, the great niece, the great-great-niece of, um, of Captain Parker. And she's, uh, she works uh, in the New York Times. Um, suddenly, I forgot, I forgot her name, of course. Um, I can get it, though. Um, she she uh, wrote about... Her own. um, Let me stop her there. I got I got like that. They'll take this out. Okay. So anyways, so um, there's four four books about it. And I said to myself, wait a minute, you know what? There still might be room for another small book about this. And all the Ottoman debates about this going on in, 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 in this one dossier. So there's still a lot that people don't even know about this. I'll end by saying that every archaeologist in Jerusalem knows about the Parker tunnels. To them this is no mystery. There was a person that came and dug under the Temple Mount for 3 years looking for treasure. He didn't find it. He made he created these important cleared out these old ancient tunnels. Okay? So what I'm saying is that as historians we were so fixated on the conflict that we missed other things, that what I call make Palestinians Palestinians, that give them a whole life outside of that conflict. Remember, they are the majority, and the Jews are the minority. About fifteen percent, Jews were at the most around a hundred thousand, Palestinians in were around seven hundred thousand. Some scholars put it at ten percent, twelve percent. All the work I'm seeing is about it's about fifteen percent, um, right at nineteen fourteen, right at the war. So this is something that uh, shows us that there's still a lot of things to uncover um, in terms of the political and social history of the period.
0: I want to thank you because you anticipated a question I had about uh, this particular chapter, given that archaeology is a very controversial topic, particularly in in the current uh, era, uh, where Archaeology has being politicized and weaponized in a sense, and is a very cogent and important uh, uh, element in order to understand, as I said, the contemporary issues. But let me go back to your chapter two, where essentially you start discussing very much the question of a Palestinian collective identity. And one of the fascinating parts of this uh, chapter is that you're looking at the role of peasantry. Again, another. Uh, sort of a community that often has been neglected and forgotten by historians, certainly pre-2000. So how did a collective Palestinian identity emerge? And what was the role of peasants?
1: Thanks for that, Uh, very uh, very good question. I mean, what is interesting is that, A, we see peasants have agency. Um, They, through their mukhtars, the village leaders, and through other independent factors, are writing directly to the Ottomans, complaining that Zionist Jews are coming and buying their land and throwing them off this land. And this is around 1910, 1911. So A, the peasants were very well aware that their future was endangered by this new Jewish immigration. Now, for most Palestinians in the urban arena, they couldn't foresee that this was any danger whatsoever. They, uh, at times, looked positive upon the Jewish community and the immigrants. Uh, we know from uh, Jonathan Gribbett's book that uh, Ruhi al-Khalidi, the MP who I write about, the member of parliament from Jerusalem, met quite often with Eliezer bin Yehuda, who's seen as the, the father of modern Hebrew, which I debate a bit also but he was very very they met and they discussed events together on a fairly uh it happened quite uh, often actually i don't want to say weekly basis but they met quite a bit to discuss issues in palestine so the uh, urban arena by 1912-13 start to see that the peasants are very very upset and they almost feel that they're being sold out by their own uh, notables. Now, well, we have an interesting dynamic here. And if we look at the Egyptian history to the early 20th century, the Denshaway incident, which I include in my book, we see that it's when the urban journalists and the politicians come together to adopt the peasant cause, that you create a sense of national identity before they can even foresee that they're going to be an independent state. So what we call, I would call local patriotism. And this local patriotism in Palestine emerges around this period where you have on one hand the traditional notables in Jerusalem. They're the uh, al-Husseini family, um, the nashashibi family the Khalidi family they're on one hand and we have this division of labor from among them how they how they interact with the ottomans ottomans have the politics and the notables where they delegate work to each family and they try not to um, set off an imbalance between the power between the different families and that's going to affect palestinian uh, nationalism or the, the inability to unite at times all the way up through the 1950s, you could argue. And on the other hand, uh, you have the journalists who are mostly Christian during this period. You have, for example, Isa al Isa of the uh, newspaper Philistine, which means Palestine. So what we see is that we have a coming together of the different groups where the work to delegate the newspapers is actually by christian editors now these christian editors what makes these papers palestinian papers and not just christian papers or arab christian papers is they start especially in philistine but of course in haifa and uh, el carmel they start adopting the cause of the peasant on one hand they start reiterating these ideas of palestinianists or what i call palestinianism during this period um by reminding their readers that this is happening within the land of philistine um and they are a pressure point to some extent on the notables in jerusalem to act so by 1914 you really have for the first time a conscious Palestinian identity you could argue and that is this idea of a local patriotism of them joining together to protect the homeland or what i argue in the book to claim to make claim over the homeland now remember they are they see the jewish community and the the growing jewish community and the growing autonomy of the jewish community as a threat but without the peasants okay without the peasants Um, the picture would be completely different. We can't say that in history without. But they are a key part to this. I think there's a lot more work to be done on this also. Now we see interesting uh, exchanges during this period and uh, also in Bisan. So we have Al-Nasri, which is Nazareth in the north, and you have Bisan um, uh, near the Jordan River. And this is where you have fears that the Ottomans are going to sell huge tracts of lands to the Zionists during this period, the former lands of al-Hamid II. So these are these are flashpoints of conflict. Let's more Nazareth, right? This area of Fula, These are flashpoints of conflict. Now we always, from the very beginning of Jewish colonization, we have conflicts. But these conflicts should not be placed within that national framework. These conflicts. You had uh, Jewish farmers in Anatolia at the same time. This is when later on we can talk about my new work, what I'm doing. But uh, the idea of the what we call the first immigration, the first Aliyah, uh, was these farming communities that were really should be seen as um, a sense of pride among many of the urban folk, Um, uh, a bit of anomaly, you know, uh, a bit strange. In the sense that who are these people going out to farm, but but this was the moment that we have for the Jewish community a really a, a big transformation in itself to uh, becoming independent also. Um, so for the first twenty or years, twenty years or so, most of the Palestinians don't see this the, the colonies as some kind of uh, of threat. Um, but by uh, 1908. It's actually the urban, the strengthening of the urban community that, that poses a threat. By 1912, we see that they're, they're becoming more and more independent, more autonomous. And this has been written out of the history. The history has been written of conflict going back to the 1880s, 1890s, and mostly looking at the rural areas of settler colonialism and, and so forth and so on. But I would argue that it's actually the urban local Jewish communities and the divisions, And I'll end here, it's very important that while you had some kind of communal relations between Jews and Arabs within the urban arena, definitely you had, you you could see each other at at weddings, you could be uh, Jews and Arabs working together often, but this didn't uh, extend towards the peasants and the Jewish groups, including the Sephardic Arabic speaking Jews, really saw no connection between them and the peasants. And I think that's something that should be really, really uh, clear. The Jewish community, even the Arabic-speaking Jewish communities, were very different than, let's say, the, the Cairo Jewish community or the Baghdad Jewish community, where you see that they're starting to unite under an Iraqi identity or under Egyptian identity. In Palestine, I claim that for the most part, overall, the Palestinian identity was only Christians and Muslims, And the new Jewish identity, of course, was bringing that hodgepodge of communities into one overarching community connected through Hebrew and pride of building the Jewish homeland, the modern Jewish homeland within Palestine.
0: In the second part of the book, since you talked about now the Palestinians, you are talking more about uh, the Jews, the Jewish communities and Zionists in Palestine, but also Istanbul. Now, you already mentioned a few uh, elements earlier, but I was wondering who were the Jews in Palestine at the beginning of the 20th century? For instance, you argue that Jewish communities previously uh, were loosely connected, then at some point united together. How and why?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of interplay here between... um, We have um, so many different things happening at this one time. You know, I tell my students to rise up to the sky and then look down. And you'll start seeing that so many different things are happening. You have the Young Turk Revolution on one side. You have the the death of Herzl on the other in 1904, where after this, um, the Zionist movement is only looking at Palestine. They forfeited the idea of... They forfeited the idea of having a homeland in Uganda, for example. Um, But you do still have territorialists during this period. And when you have debates in the Ottoman Istanbul, for example, of a Jewish homeland and buying land, it's actually the territorialists who are trying to cut a deal to make what would become Iraq, Mesopotamia, a Jewish homeland. So what we see is that during this period, we have many things happening. Now what's happening in Palestine? One, a growing sense of Ottoman identity, Ottoman patriotism, that's going to unite different groups. Some of them are the immigrant groups, some of them are the Arabic-speaking Jews, who were mostly often immigrant groups who had came in um, often in the 1870s from North Africa. And you also have older Jewish communities that had uh, been there. You even have a uh, a traditional Hasidic community. But what you see in all their newspapers by 1910, 1911, is this growing sense of, we are living within the Ottoman sphere, and what does that mean for us? For many, that is, and especially the Sephardic community, um, and the newer generation of Ashkenazis that are born there in these farming communities, is let's connect ourselves with the capital. And that's with Istanbul. So we see um, during this period this new identity arising where you have Ashkenazi Jews who their parents immigrated to farming communities um, uh, within the uh, different areas of Palestine, connecting with Jews who were children of immigrants in Jerusalem from more traditional religious homes, connecting with Jewish people. And from North Africa, who are in, in Jaffa, for example. And all of these, these more modern groups, modernization also meant adopting more of an Ottoman identity, seizing the moment and saying, we are here, let's promote Hebrew as our first language, Ottoman, Turkish as our second language. And for many, the third language would be Arabic, but that sort of pushed aside. And in fact, what we're going to see is that, surprisingly at times, it's actually the Ashkenazi community that's speaking Arabic quite well, the ones that are in the the farming communities that have relations with Arabs on the day-to-day basis, where some of the traditional Sephardic Jews or Arab-speaking Jews um, didn't know how to read or write Arabic. That's very, very important. They um, often were reading Arabic and Hebrew characters, Judeo-Arabic. So... That idea that um, many people have, uh, quite a few scholars have been trying to connect them and say that they were closer to Palestinians somehow, the Arabic-speaking Jews, which I don't see whatsoever. In fact, I see the opposite. I see that these are very small, conservative communities. In fact, the Jewish community in Palestine overall, and then you could compare it with the Arab community, is that they are quite conservative. And for example, where in Beirut, we're going to be seeing in Cairo, Beirut, other places, we'll see, much more, we'll see many more women journalists, for example, which we don't see in Palestine. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's still a very uh, conservative in that sense. So what we have is this Jewish community post-1908 uniting together. And whether it's the Moria, which is the religious newspaper, Ashkenazi, more leaning towards Hasidic, uh, you have... Hatzvi, which is the father of modern Hebrew Eliezer ben Yehuda's paper and you have Hachirut Which is the Sephardic newspaper is that you do have this interchange of What we want the Jewish yeshuv to look like Under and what what does a modern Jewish community look like and they all adopt this idea of Hebrew and that's very important so that doesn't mean integration complete integration but it does mean creating a new constructing this idea of a hebrew identity and i think that's key let me end by saying this also is the the post 1908 young turk revolution also brings politicians ottoman jewish politicians politicians who are in the parliament who support zionism not as a separate ideology or a separate state but as sort of Jewish pride, so we have that also happening in Istanbul at the same time.
0: And, and I want to ask you something about uh, sort of this this connection that you make with, uh, with with Istanbul. So, how would you define the relationship between the Ottomans and the Zionists in this period of time? And I think it's important also that to highlight the fact that you, you are extending the border of uh, Palestinian uh, and Zionist and Jewish history in a sense that you're connecting the dots of these communities with the center of the empire.
1: Yeah, you know, without understanding the dynamics and the, the, the tensions between the young Turks and their opposition, the, the Committee of Union Progress who were the, the, uh, in power and their opposition, the Liberal Entente and different groups, it's very hard to understand what's happening in Palestine because oddly enough, the representatives of Palestine in the, in the parliament are, I mentioned before, Ruhi al Khaladi and Saida Husseini, and, and two other people, from, one from Akka and Jaffa. But the, the one from Jerusalem are on the side of the CUP, which is being accused of being pro Zionist. Now, the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress, has people like um, uh, the MP Karaso uh, from Saloniki, Sal- Salonika, and they have someone named uh, Nisi Mazliak from Izmir. And he's a diehard pro CUP, pro Jewish community. I mean, the same time this is happening, the Jewish community in Istanbul and Izmir, in the more traditional and Salonika, are saying let's be proud citizens. Let's speak Turkish because most of the communities are still speaking Ladino, but at the same time, we're staunchly against the state. But Zionism can be understood as a cultural movement similar to those of Armenians who want to speak uh, Armenian, Greeks. So they come up with this. They come up with this uh, formula where, for them, Zionism means that they're going to teach kids modern Hebrew in uh, kindergarten. Okay, and that's it. And they're going to support the Jewish community in Palestine. Now here we're going to get a really mixed up uh, situation here. Quite confusing. Because as they support the Jewish community in Palestine, some of them are staunch anti-Zionist. One of them has been over and over in literature. You have two people. One in Palestine, Albert and Tebbi. Who has been seen as someone who was a uh, Ottoman protege, the 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 model Ottoman with the Tarbush, He spoke Turkish. He spoke Arabic. He's originally from Damascus. He's not from Palestine. That's very very important um, because you know he goes to uh, he goes to France and then he gets educated and then he comes to Palestine as uh, the head of the Aniyan school. Uh, he also uh, spoke Hebrew quite well. But the Jews in Damascus are speaking less Hebrew than the local Jews, okay, um, in Palestine. That's very, very. That's also important. So we have someone that has been seen over and over again as an anti-Zionist, and in their books they write him sort of as he was in opposition of, of the of, of uh, the Jewish Yeshuv. No, the opposite holds true. He was anti-Zionist, meaning he was anti-pro-Jewish state. He definitely was for strengthening the independent Jewish community in Palestine. He definitely was for um, strengthening Hebrew language and the Hebrew institutions in the uh, the city itself. So then on the other hand, you have the chief rabbi, Chaim Nachum, who is anti-Zionist. But it was through the connections of the Jewish yeshuv, the Sephardic Jewish yeshuv, through their connections with Chaim Nachum, okay, that they're able to close for the steam, the newspaper, two or three times for being um, discriminatory against Jewish people. Okay? Saying that Zionism, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism when it's done by Palestinians. This this debate already comes up then, right? Anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism already comes up during the Ottoman period. So what we have here is, yes, they're anti zionists and many histories look at them as sort of being, you know, these enlightened Jews that didn't choose the Zionist way. And if only everyone chose their way, things would have been much different. No, they were pro-Jewish Yeshuv. They were pro-Jewish community. They were pro-speaking Hebrew. They took pride over this, in this community. And connecting this to Chaim Nachum, Chaim Nachum was close to many people in the CUP. And the fact that the Jews were so close, so popular among some of the, you have two or three very big MPs, that you really have the beginnings of What I talk about modern anti-Semitism within Istanbul. And the anti-Zionist movement is going to start connecting the anti-Semitic movement. Now, let me tell you, this gets confusing, that the two MPs in Jerusalem are on the pro-government side that that puts them on the jewish side the palestinians are placed on the jewish side and they're saying there's no conspiracy here we don't hate jews in fact we like jews in fact we study with jews and some of them study at the alliance israeli the school some of the, the, the arab mps so they're, they're they have a, the palestinians are going to have a, a extra weight on them defending their right to palestine and saying we're not anti-jewish we're not anti-semitic and being part of the government Now this, by 1912, 1913, really starts, the two sides start separating, um, and the Palestinians really um, lose any hope in the government. But the ones talking about anti-Zionism really are the conspiracy theorists in Istanbul, and it has nothing to do with the debate in Palestine. Zero almost. It really has about this idea that There was this revolution, Young Turk revolution. Who's behind it? Jewish people are behind it. Um, And of course, Zionism, world Zionism. And that's where you get the modern conspiracy theories coming up in Istanbul during this period that are still very much alive, in fact.
0: Conspiracy theories are not just a plague of the 21st century, but certainly pre-existed our contemporary era. Yes, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. If you have to draw some conclusions in relation to your work, what would this be?
1: The conclusion is something I've I've already uh, talked about here is that really we need to rethink how we do history and we need to revise history. We have, you know, in in Middle East history, we have a bit of a problem. We have the problem, oh, that person, she's done that already, I can't do it. Or I've done that, no one else can do it. And there's a lot of territorialness within the field. And I say to people, there's a thousand books on Napoleon. There's a thousand books on every American, hundreds of books on George Washington, I'm sure, or on any, any other history we're looking at. The dreyfus affair think about this but when we come to middle east history we have this idea oh they've already done it let's move on they already looked at the documents let's move on now we know in history that it's really seen in the eyes of the beholder and it seems that history historic history is written to a great deal in the eyes of the person writing it so for example one of my uh book reviews i got criticized on one small issue it was a hebrew one uh, And I felt that I felt it was a a bit fair in the sense I said, well, Louis is very political and I can I can feel this in this book. Yes, for me, it was very important to put the Palestinians on the map. For me, it was essential to put Palestinians on the map and say that, yes, there was a group that called themselves Palestinians, whatever that means, because they have undergone systematic denial of their existence from the start, from the start. And in a way, my work argues, or engages, or counters the work of some of the greatest Arab nationalists that say, we were all one Arab people, or we were all Syrians. No, yes, when they, when Palestinians went abroad, they perhaps define themselves as Syria, the greater area, many many, uh, immigrants, many Jews also were Syrians when they went to Argentina or Mexico City or Brooklyn. Right. This is. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that one thing needs to counter the other or x out the other, but definitely in Palestine by 1914, you have a people that they call themselves the al Palestini, the Palestinian people. For me, that's very, very important. Number two, something important to stamp. I think that I think the conclusion that I came is that we have adopted wholeheartedly a Zionist narrative that was written in, and this is something I want to develop, that was written by David Ben-Gurion and his friends in the 1930s. The hegemonic, hegemonic labor movement in Israel, and then it's Palestine Mandate, but later on, they, they, after the post-state, remember, they are writing the history books. They are writing, and we talk about history of victors, we're talking about political victory over the others. So we have wholeheartedly, we've adopted this idea of settler colonialism. Now, I think settler colonialism is a strong argument for the 20s and 30s in the post-British era. But in the pre-World War One era, I think we've misunderstood a lot of things because of the history of the of the labor Zionists is actually a settler colonial narrative. It actually really is that, you know, everyone's looking at, at the at the farming communities, right, and the colonies, and they're not looking at what's happening in the urban arena. They're not looking about this idea of mobility, and I, that's another thing that we're going to have to look at. When I completed after this uh, article on the Arab Jews, I really saw that there's this mobility that I completely missed in my work, and that mobility is Jews going back and forth from Cairo to jothor or Jerusalem. And the connections they have, whether it's uh, getting uh positions, whether it's trade, whether it's whether it's uh, in-laws, visiting in-laws, families. OK, and that Istanbul connection. So the issue of mobility, I come to the conclusion that perhaps I didn't focus enough on mobility also among Palestinians. Um, and uh, Mustafa Manawi has a, a very interesting book coming out on uh, next year on the Arabs that were in Istanbul, suddenly when they're cut off from the empire, what do they do? They're Ottomans, and where do they go? And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that book. So that's some of the conclusions I reached, is that, yeah, we, we, we really need to rethink both the Arab nationalist narrative and the Zionist narrative, and to to look at local patriotism, to look at what does that mean to be Lebanese, or Syrian, or Palestinian, or... And to look at the Yeshuv itself, what does it mean to be an Ottoman Jew during this period? Um, and what does that mean when, when when a lot of authors say, Oh, there were Arabic speaking Jews and someone in Spad says, Yeah, but there's not one Jew who can fill a position that we need him to speak Arabic. They don't they speak, but they don't read and write. So we have a lot to we have a lot to uncover here. I I really believe
0: that. Thank you. And I very much appreciated the fact that you already answered to some of the criticisms that your work has received. And I was going to touch upon that. But as I said, you already answered to to that question. So that leaves me with the last question, which is very much about the future. Do you have uh, new projects coming up? Uh, Can you give us a sense in a few words of uh, where is your work uh, heading now?
1: So my work is always usually divided between uh, writing uh, a lot about current politics, mostly Turkish politics, which uh, I I, I want to continue on. Um, But in terms of Ottoman history, my next project, and it's really um, you ask at at a perfect time uh, because I'm really pondering on this topic now, but it really is going headed in the direction of the emergence of what I call a Jewish question and to look at that, exactly that question you asked, what is happening in Istanbul and how is that connected to Palestine? I think I can really develop, you know, I wanna develop this more about the Ottoman Jewish Jewish uh, soldiers, for example, fighting on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. So, in, you know, in 1912, you have this strange dynamic, dynamic that the Ottoman governor of Jerusalem, I was just reading this the other day, Ottoman. It, so in my book I write about this, but I don't. I just say it's of interest. I don't develop it. But the Ottoman government goes to the to the Jewish colonies of Rishon Etzion and Petach Tikva, um, and the mayor of Jerusalem, Hassan el Husseini, also joins him. And at one time they're meeting. This is 1912. At the same time, you have just during this period, a little before, you have the uh, breakout of the. Libyan-Italian uh, War, the Ottoman-Italian uh, War. So what we're having is we have a lot going on within in Palestine, but it really goes back to what's happened in Istanbul, and that's what is the future of the Jews in the empire? Um, and there's a lot of confusion. I'll tell you that it's interesting, uh, the, the direction, I'll, I'll, I'll make it short, but the direction I'm headed in is to see that on one hand, yes, you have, uh, anti-Semitism but the other hand you also have a very strong pro-jewish group within the Empire and the, you have Ottomans saying you know what Jews could be that loyal community that we need um, to modernize our uh, empire so and the ones that are supporting the Jewish groups to extent um, fear the rise of Greek nationalism within the Empire and the ones that are supporting the, the, more, the more anti-Jewish groups are supporting the Greek group. So that's, that's something I've been, um, that should come out next year in, a, in, a, in an article. So what is this anti-Semitism? And why, after 1914, do Jews lose their position that they achieved? And they'll never, they'll never retain it again. They'll never come back to it again in, in modern Turkey. So to, to answer, the book would look at issues of mobility from the late 1880s with Palestine in, uh, till about 1940, and end up looking at Turkish Jews. So, so that's sort of what I, I want I to look at. I want to explore, trying to connect all these dots together. The other thing is that I'm not uh, at all uh, stopping here about writing about Palestinians. So I'm doing this project where I'm reading with a student. Weekly we read the, the Philistine, it's gonna go on for another uh, eight, nine months where I just read Philistine. So I'm coming up with ideas also there to write about. And I'm finding a lot of material that's connected exactly to what I was talking about before, about the rise of anti-Semitism in Istanbul, the fear that the CUP is very pro-Jewish and what are we going to do about this? How are we going to tackle this? So I'm really interested in looking at internal Palestinian politics also. Um, Why Philistine supports the Damascus more... uh, liberal entente groups, while the MPs are supporting the government more. So what are these divisions among the Palestinians, and why do they emerge? So either work will look at each community more separately, though. I think both works will look at them separately and and, 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 and put that, I've done the conv, well, the conflict or what the, the roots of it, whatever you want to call it. I, I looked at them together. Now I really think it's time to to separate the two groups. And, you know, look one at Ottoman Jews, the other one on, on, on internal Palestinian politics. And, and where what does that look like during that period?
0: This was Louis Fishman, Associate Professor at Brooklyn College, New York, author of Jews and Palestinians in the Late Ottoman Era, 1908-1914, Claiming the Homeland, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2020. Louis, thank you so much.